morning. It's good to see you all. If we haven't had the honor of meeting, my name's Chris, one of the pastors here at Kesed. Uh, can we say now it's officially Christmas season? Are we good? All right. For some of us, it has been Christmas season since uh, like November 1st, right? I like to call it the Christmas sandwich. We've got Christmas, and then we take a little break for Thanksgiving, and then we have more Christmas. So that's the right way to do it. Amen? Hallelujah, right? It's okay if not. Um, if uh, Just one last plug. If you've never been before, on Tuesday night here, we have what we call our Christmas build. And basically what happened was, as the Lord blessed us with um, this amazing building and facility, that was awesome. But then when we got to Christmas the first year, like 30,000 square feet is a lot to decorate, right? And that fell on a few people. So we said, hey, I bet some more people would like to be a part of this whole thing. So that just started a tradition where we decorate the Lord's house together. Um, for Christmas and have some fellowship. Um, it's a fun time. Our goal is both practical, get it decorated, but also it creates a great space for just getting to know some people that um, maybe you haven't met before or maybe uh, some people that you do know. So we'd love to have you be a part of that. A reminder, if you can, let us know you're coming. You can, um, you, on your app or online, uh, you can register for that so that we know how much pizza to get. Amen? All right. Okay. We're going to dive right in this morning. We've been in a series called Iconic, and this is a teaching series about the power of redeeming the symbols of our world to point to the beauty of the gospel. We, this word redeem, it, the idea of deeming something, defining it, Jesus is in the business of redeeming, of saying that definition that was over this thing or this person, there's another way to look at it. And so we are just doing his work during this series. And what we're doing is looking at different symbols throughout our culture and saying, is there a different way to look at them? Maybe there is even a cultural way to describe them, but maybe can, can we look at them and can we pull out some gospel truth out of them to point back to Jesus? And so during this holiday season, that has been our goal. We've had a few conversations already. We've looked at the cross. We've looked at pumpkins. We've looked at leaves. And today, without further ado, right, I want to introduce you. Our icon today is a turkey, right? Very fitting, is it not? Did you know, right? Did you know that uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that Americans consume more than 46 million turkeys on Thanksgiving each year, right? Now, I think some of us know this part very intimately this weekend. Turkeys are a unique food to prepare, are they not? Right? Some of us may be keenly aware of this right now. A frozen turkey, uh, 10 to 18 pound turkey, takes two to three and a half days to thaw in the fridge and five to nine hours in cold water, right? And I'm hoping that no one had that story this year, but you know, I won't make you raise your hand if you did. Right? That's just the time to thaw it. Then you have to prepare it, and then it takes another several three to four hours in the oven or on the smoker, however you make it. But the unique thing about turkeys is that this isn't right, this isn't generally a meal. You get uh, home from work, you're like, what am I going to eat tonight? I know turkey, right? Hopefully, we're not taking it and shoving that thing in the microwave. That's not a good way of, if no one told you that already, that's not a good way of doing things. Right? This is a meal that actually takes preparation and intentionality. And so when we think about the icon of, uh, and the image, the symbol of a turkey today, I want you to both think of the meal, right? 
By the way, if, I, if you made me choose, I'd probably prefer ham over turkey. That's all right. When we think about turkey, though, today, I'm asking you not just to think about the meal, but actually, like, the meal as a whole, and we'll use the word banquet today. When we're, when we're thinking about this idea of a gathering around food with people, that's the image that I want you to have. So as we dive into that together this morning, I have a quick question for you, right? Here it is. We're going we're gonna to set our, our turkey aside for just a second. How do you choose which way you will get to where you're going? And I'm thinking specifically right now like directions, Okay, so how do you choose? I'm a, I am a Google Maps person. I would never know where I'm going without Google Maps. I have lived in this area my whole life and still often am lost because I, I like to say it's because I'm relational and I'm talking in the car with people, but I just, maybe that's not a good excuse. My wife's like, hey, you just kind of don't know where you're going most of the time, right? So Google Maps is a very beautiful tool. I, it's a, the Lord has blessed me with that tool. I can just put the address in, right? But, but if you've ever done that before, there's several options. So some of us, when we're choosing how we get to where we're going to go, right, we have some people that just choose, they look at the the number at the bottom, right? What's the fastest way? Do we have any fastest way people, right? Okay. Do I have any scenic route people, right? Some of us are like, I would rather go the beautiful way, right? I am this mix of, I want the fastest way, but I, if I see any red, on there, right? If I see any, I'm gonna have to stop or there's a lot of stoplights or anything else. I grow, I'm, I live in Battleground. I would much rather just like literally go up to Longview and around. I don't even care. If I get to go, all right, that's more podcast time or worship time or whatever, music time, all the above. But my preference would be that I'm not just stopping and starting. So I will, I will leave earlier. I will drive around so that I don't have to draw, stop in traffic or have a lot of stoplights and everything else. And so all of us bring values into our decision-making in terms of how we get to where we're going. Which way do we choose? Now, what I want to talk about this morning, right, is some language that we find in the New Testament about this way of life, this following of Jesus. And I'm going to start by reading a quote to you from Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, talking about following Jesus. He says this, to follow Jesus implies that we enter into a way of life that is given character and shape and direction by the one who calls us. Right? Let me read that one more time for you. I need you to hear uh, this. To follow Jesus implies that we enter into a way of life that is given character and shape and direction by the one who calls us. This Jesus way of life is different than the, and than the way of life that we see all around us. I've shared many times here before my faith story um, kind of really settled in at 21. I came to faith in Jesus and I had a radical transformation in my life, at least at that point. By the way, anyone that knew me at that point, a radical transformation needed to happen at that point. And I didn't know much about this way of Jesus. And so I, in that moment, I said yes to Jesus, not fully knowing what that meant for me, and then ever since then, 20 years um, doing this whole thing, I'm still figuring out what this way of Jesus means, and I'm learning, hopefully learning more each and every day. This is true for any of us that would call ourselves Christ followers, that there is a way of Jesus, and we are to gather together regularly and look at the scriptures and learn them and meditate on them, because we need to move towards the way of Jesus. 
This way is actually language we see in the New Testament, as I mentioned. In fact, the early believers were known as followers of the way. Luke says that Aquila and Priscilla explained to Apollos as they're showing and discipling, they, they showed the way of God more fully in Acts 18. Peter refers to Christianity as the way of truth in 2 Peter 2. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus' broken body is the new and living way. This is the imagery that we are given. Now, when we think about this word, the, the simplest analogy, and actually the definition for this word, just means a road or a highway, right? This is the idea, that there is a way, a path that you are to follow as a Christ follower, and it's going to have certain values along the road and a certain destination, and as Christ followers, we get pretty good at focusing on the destination. That's a good thing. That's eternity with God. But the path there is where this thing gets muddy and messy along the way because continually the way of Jesus will deviate from the way that you and I want to go. Our job is to continue to allow Jesus through the scriptures and through the Holy Spirit, through good, healthy community and wisdom to keep adjusting what our expectations should be to lay down our need to define our own way. See, Jesus knows that there is a way to get there and there is also a way to travel on the road to where you are going. And the Jesus way is not meant to get you to where you want to go fastest or to give you the least comfortable journey. No, the Jesus way is about transforming you into Christ-likeness. I want to clarify that, simple and complex. The way of Jesus is not just about the destination. It's about forming and crafting a way and experiences through this life, through your workplace and your family and your friends and all in your suffering and all the above and along the way, creating a path for you to move more and more and more into the character and nature of Jesus himself. And so that's why sometimes when the path deviates in a way that we don't like it, we start thinking, wait a second, I want this to be easy. And, and Jesus is saying... <laughs> That's not what you need right now. We need to go a different route. We, there's some skill sets or some things that we need to unpack together and learn together. We, we just, uh, just last week had a beautiful expression of the idea of, of letting go of things. And we all continually, not just one time, but have, need to have practices where we're looking at what we're carrying from, from burdens to anxieties to stresses. How do I continually, on the way of Jesus, not pack myself with too many things along the way, right? How do I travel? So Christians for all, um, for all of time have been going to Jesus and learning how to do this. And we can presume that the early Christ followers referred to themselves as followers of the way because of Jesus' statement in John 14, 6, where he says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And a little kind of aside here for us for a second. See, Jesus as the truth is a beautiful uh, and complex thing, but really what we're doing is saying his words, the red words that happen inside of the, the Bible, those are true. They are the truest true. That is a, a good thing, an a, uh, important thing in faith for us. Now, can we admit for a second that um, Christians have not always been the best at agreeing on what the red words say, right? But we do agree that they're the truth, right? Now, what Jesus is saying here is we are to believe that, and then we are to trust that Jesus is the truth. That's the part that's external, 
But Jesus as the way says his way of living, not only is the right way, but it's supposed to be my way, like how I'm living. And this is where this gets intimate and this is where it gets personal in that I am saying yes as a Christ follower to setting down the values that I have in this culture that I got from my family, that I got from my trauma, that I got from my suffering. You, wherever you got the values that order how you live, how you relate to others and what you find most important, I am consistently setting those down and picking up the values of Jesus. And they aren't always the easiest one, especially in the moment. And especially, by the way, we are uh, moving into December, which for a lot of us is, is going to start, <clears throat> excuse me, the rhythm where we... Uh, we partake in banquet and food for, and then like for this holiday season and then January hits and what do we do? Go to the gym, we start working out, right? So, and how many of us have started new habits in that time and then really quickly jettisoned those habits? Really quickly, never. All of us are completely, this is so good. I don't even have to talk about discipline anymore. All of us are 100% disciplined here. I love that. There's no tongue in cheek in that at all whatsoever, right? But, it's one thing to learn a new skill and it's another to like even agree that it needs to be adopted and then the actual adopting to where it becomes my nature, that's the hard stuff, right? And so that's why we come together regularly and we look at the words of Jesus and allow him to inform our values. In the book of Luke, we see an emphasis on uh, language we've used before on an upside down kingdom, right? Looking around at this world and saying, this is how power happens. This is how authority happens. This is what, how the powerful people and the people with enough and too much, how they are to treat others. And Jesus comes and says, actually, we're going to flip this whole thing. All right? And it's not the person with the most power and authority that is given the most honor. Actually, everyone is given the most honor. We don't have a hierarchy of that. And the Gospel of Luke, Luke emphasizes the upside-down nature of his kingdom, a place where all are welcome and power structures are reversed, a place where the poor and the humble and the outcasts of society are elevated to places of honor. And this book emphasizes this through a series of parables about, this is where we come back to our turkey or our banquet, about banquets and feasts where Jesus illustrates that all are welcome in the family of God. Um, I like to point to this as often as I can. There's some wonderful resources that we have access to now. Um, one of my favorite is called The Bible Project and has a, a, an awesome series of videos and even podcasts around the book of Luke and understanding how important gathering and banquets and feasts was for the early believers. So just want to highlight that's a great resource for us. But in the book of Luke, we see this kind of pattern. See, Jesus would call, he calls his first disciples and he brings them intimately with him. As he does Jesus-y things on his Jesus-y way, he invites them into doing the same thing. And this thing would happen where he would teach them and then they would do it together, right? And then Jesus would perform miracles and he would heal people and he, he would speak truth to power. And the disciples along the way were kind of, kind of had this collision where their way of living would be confronted with Jesus' way of living and they had a choice. And Jesus, in an intimate way, right, would invite them to continually choose his way over their way. And this is how he led and this is how he taught. 
In Luke 9, we see Jesus send out his disciples to do the same work that he has been doing. So Jesus brings in his disciples, he teaches them intimately, and then there's this point that reveals to us something about this kingdom that he is setting up, which is, it's not supposed to stay small. That he trains them, and then there is a sending out that this isn't just, so like, I don't know about you, but if I was one of the disciples, I would be more than happy to be the note taker on the side for Jesus, right? I want to be on team Jesus, right? I want to be a part of what he's doing, right? But I'm more than happy. Jesus, you do the heavy lifting of the the loving the community. You you are more than capable. I'm happy to just kind of like like do the stuff on the side, but that's not how Jesus does this. And this is true, by, by the way, for me and for you. Eventually... See, eventually there is a kind of eye contact, a, a moment where this gets really intimate. And Jesus says, now you've learned enough. You go do it. You love people, right? And you can imagine for the disciples, they had this like, probably most of us are like, which people, right? Like, which people am I supposed to love? And Jesus is like, everyone. So I'm sending you out to go do the work that I'm doing. And they go and they learn and they have unique experiences and they come back. And then actually in Luke 10, Jesus sends a larger group of disciples ahead of him to announce the arrival of his upside down kingdom. Again, reveals to us that this kingdom is something that we are not to just tell others about what Jesus is doing, that we are to participate in it. And as this group comes back and returns... He offers them some additional training in the way of Jesus. A variety of teachings on topics from prayer to trusting God in in his provision to teaching on wealth and possessions and generosity. See, Jesus loves to use story as an example of this. He continues to use parables. So parables that we'll find in the book of Luke... The Webster's definition is just usually short, fictitious stories that illustrate a moral attitude or a religious principle. We see throughout the New Testament, one of Jesus' favorite teaching devices isn't just saying, hey, take notes on this bullet-pointed truth statement. It's just Ten Commandments. He's saying, no, I'm going to tell a story that, that involves real life, and I think you can climb into that story and see your own within it. But I want to be clear about this. When we read a parable of Jesus, our Our job is not to first ask a question like, how is this about me? Instead, we read a parable and ask, what does this tell us about Jesus and the kingdom that he is building? We have to get the value that he's teaching. Jesus is looking at the world, looking at the way in which we are operating with one another. And often he's noticing something that needs to shift. So he tells a story and that paints a picture for a new way of living. So today we're going to dive into a parable in Luke 14, starting in verse 7. All right. There's three words that start this parable. We're actually today going to read it. I don't normally use the Passion Translation, but I think for often for parables, uh, it brings like modern imagery and some of the language that we use today that's helpful. But this, this parable starts with these three words, okay? When Jesus noticed, right? Just, just notice that with me. So many parables, so many of the Jesus stories start with Jesus showing up in an everyday life situation. So workplace, uh, the way in which people gathered, the way in which he was just traveling along and Jesus noticed something. And that's what clicks into uh, place this 
need to say, that's not how we do things in my way, all right? It's something that is true then and also needs to be true now. Now, now what does he notice? It says this, Jesus noticed how the guests for the meal were all vying for the seats of honor, and he shared this story with the guests around the table. Jesus is invited to a meal that is set up, set up by the Pharisees, okay? The leader of the Pharisees, this would have been one of the most powerful and influential people in the entire church, or in the entire faith system, and so when they throw a party, when they throw a banquet, everyone comes and Jesus is invited. And he's noticing that people are arguing over which seat to have at the party. Now, I don't know about you and Thanksgiving, maybe you really care about your proximity to the turkey legs or the mashed potatoes or the sweet potatoes, right? You bring your values into that system or, or maybe it's access out of there or whatever it is. Maybe it's away from your crazy uncle, Right? We got some crazy uncles, that's okay. But Jesus is noticing that these people aren't, seat, they're bickering over which seats to take. And he says this, when you are invited to an important social function, don't be quick to see sit near the head of the table, choosing for yourself a seat of honor. What will happen to you when someone arrives who is more distinguished than you the host will bring him over to where you are sitting and ask for your seat, saying in front of all the guests, you are in the wrong place. Please give, the person, please give this person your seat. Disgraced, you will have to take whatever seat is left. When we're understanding the Bible, right, step one is asking a question like, what did the text mean to the biblical audience? So we don't just start with our story. We say, what's happening here? And here's how I'll describe this, right? Uh, do we have any Blazer fans here? I said this first service, right? I feel like in the years past, we were way quicker to say yes, but now that we're not so good, that people are like, I guess so, right? right? So if you've been to a Blazer game before, now this is none of you, right? None of you, but other people, right? Other people, Sometimes go to Blazer games and they, they buy their ticket in the 300 section or the 200 section, right? And they look down and they see some like nicer seats down there and they notice that no one is sitting in them. And they get up at halftime and they go get their drink and get their popcorn and get their whatever. And then somehow by accident, by tripping and falling, they fall down and they get down to these better seats. And they're like, I don't even know what happened here, right? I want you to imagine that you tripped and fell into like courtside seats, Okay? And you're looking around and you're seeing the game and you've got a new point of view. And this is, you know, like, like we know this at a Blazer game, right? Courtside seats are expensive. They say something. They do. They say something about you. Now, I want you to imagine that you're watching and you're in the third quarter of the game and you're enjoying this and this is amazing. This is a new experience. And then as you're sitting there, someone comes up and they tap you on the shoulder. I want you to Notice with me and look up and you see one of the people, the attendants there that wear like the red jackets or the red vests, right? And there's this understanding that happens that this person knows that this isn't your seat. And so you in front of the entire section, everyone, by the way, everyone around you already knows this isn't your seat, right? But they haven't said anything. They don't know. But this person knows and that you have to then get up and in front of everyone else, Make your way out of the 100 section, out of the 200 section, and almost in shame, go back to your original seats. 
Now, this is the best modern example I can say. Jesus is saying, we want to find a way to avoid that happening. But that's not the most important thing that is happening in this story. Jesus is saying that if, if you go and sit at the important place, and it's not the place for you, you're going to have this negative experience. But that's not the most important thing that's happening. See, there's a value here that Jesus is pointing to that we need to see. Let's talk about this banquet for a second. Jesus was invited to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and he was observing how guests chose their places. In this culture, a feast or banquet held by the most powerful or like economic or social elite was an event to be watched, and hear me on this, literally. Not figuratively, but actually literally. Like they would hold a banquet, word would spread that the powerful people, the people of authority, especially the religious elite, were gonna get together and people from kind of the lower social economic status, the Bible used the word like poor, would come and would literally form like a circle around them. I want you to think about this at your Thanksgiving if you just had a crowd of people around you. Now, why did they do this? There's a, there's a practical reason and then there's a kind of social reason. Practical reason is just this. If you're hungry and you don't have access to food, you would come sit next to the table of the people that had too much and had plenty and hope that scraps would fall to the side or, or maybe at the end of the meal, if there's extra food, that would be given to you. This is a way in which you could, gather, you could get food for you and your family, right? But beyond that, this was actually like viewing a, like something to watch because the way that they sat around the table, we don't think like this right now, but the way that they sat around a table actually said everything about who was most powerful and important. You would have the host, and then you have a seat of honor, and then like in descending, you would see who, compared to who, is most important and powerful. Now, if you were a person of a lower economic status, and everyone like at that party is above you, why do you even care about this? Well, as you were given orders or you were given direction by people at the table, you probably want to know whose, matter, whose words matter most, right? And this word would spread throughout the community where you had these different people coming. You had governors and you had religious leaders. And it wasn't until you sat at this table that you could see who was actually more important and who had more power, whose, whose words carried more weight, and so this is why the leaders at this party were jostling and wrestling over which seat they sat in because it mattered when they went back to their normal life how much power they had. This is a way to define that. And Jesus has something to say about this. Verse 10 says this. Jesus gives some direction. Instead, when you're invited to a banquet, you should choose to sit in the lowest place. When your host comes and sees you there, he may say, friend, come with me and let me seat you in a better place. Then in front of all the other guests at the banquet, he will honor you by seating you in the place of highest respect. And remember this. This is where, like, if Jesus says remember this, we should really pay attention. Everyone with a lofty opinion of who he is and who seeks to raise himself up will be publicly humbled. And everyone with a modest opinion of who he is and chooses to humble himself will be raised up before all. I just need you to hear this for a second. This Jesus, the Bible tells us that all things were created by him and through him, right? 
the one that left the, the highest place of honor and entered into our story, enters into this table. And I think this is really fitting for our Thanksgiving season, right, that we're in right now. Anyone have a kid table in their family, right? Like some of us grew up, like I grew up where the adults, there was just enough room for the adults in the main area. And then like a couple of us just had the, you know, the card table with the four legs, right? It was kind of wobbly, right? I liked it because the TV was in there, right? But But like, I want you to think about this. Jesus, the savior of the world, God incarnate, is literally sitting at the kids' table speaking to the people of power and saying, that's not how we do this here. That's The powerful people don't need to fight for power and importance. That's not a value that we have in this community. You sit where you sit. And if the person that is the host chooses to elevate you, then, then praise God, that's an amazing thing. But there's nothing that you have to fight for and earn. See, in the Jesus way, we don't need to protect our image so fiercely or to prove our importance. We trust and we know that we are sons and daughters of the living God, that importance is not something that's on the table to be taken away. It's not something of scarcity. Now, I want to take this from story and speak directly. I want to speak directly to us now. Your value, your worth, your importance is not dictated by your circumstances, nor is it decided by the people that are surrounding you in your life. But this is one of the questions that we have at the center of this story. How much energy, how much effort will we put in our life towards how people think and see us? Like how they think about us, like how much? Have you ever thought about, this may be a good healthy, gut-wrenching practice between now and the end of the year to say, I'm going to actively submit to Jesus how I think about how people see me. And say that again. I'm going to actively give and surrender to Jesus all the ways, all the big ways and little ways that I might have some small and big levels of image management Right? And wanting to make sure that I am seen, this can be about how much money we make, this can be about any circumstance, how we look, all the above, our character, our nature. I'm going to give to Jesus all the ways in which I, I kind of manage that. And because what we see in this story is Jesus saying, sit at the lowest place, don't spend your time and energy fighting for the thing you already have. You already have importance. You already have value. So that this, for many of us, this will bring us to a deeper question, which is why am I giving authority to people that don't have it or deserve it? I continue to give it to the people on the outside. And yet Jesus is the one that's giving me my worth and value. The next thing that happens in the story is Jesus is saying this from the kid table. Is he then ramps up the awkwardness. Jesus isn't afraid of awkward, right? And a little bit of tension. He ramps it up. And now he starts speaking directly to the host. He was kind of standing in the back giving some direction to the people that are with us. But now he speaks directly to the host and he says this. When you throw a banquet, don't just invite your friends, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. For it is likely they will return the favor. It is better to invite those who, have never, who never get an invitation. 
If you invite the poor to your banquet along with the outcast, the handicapped, and the blind, those who could never repay you the favor, then you will experience a great blessing in this life. And at the resurrection of the godly, you will receive a full reward. Jesus makes this declaration. He says, the way that you are gathering. Now, in this part right here, I need you to hear this, okay? Because if, if, if you read this completely literally, you'd be like, wait, was Thanksgiving sin? Like, I can't get together with my family and friends. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's speaking directly to the story of this person who has the most power in the whole area. And he's saying, I see what you're doing. You're throwing these banquets. And what this banquet continually does is shows that you're in charge. Right? Everyone else is under the hierarchy of you. And so what the direction that Jesus gives him is says, actually, you need to start throwing banquets for the people that can't give you any power. Right? You need to use your abundance and all that you have to those that can't pay it back. See, serving should have no end game other than serving. Right? Loving people should have no end game. Right? It's just loving people. Right? There shouldn't be, a, and then, no, it, I, we're called to love people, and that's it, right? Serve them, love them, and bring humility into the equation. And Jesus is speaking directly into this story. And he shares this. And it says this in verse 15. When they heard this, one of the dinner guests said to Jesus, someday God will have a kingdom feast, right? Using the same imagery. And how happy and privileged will be the ones who get to share in that joy. I love this. Jesus shares a parable and then someone hearing him shares a mini parable back, right? And this is like Jesus's favorite thing. So I'm, I'm sure he's grinning and he's excited at this point. And he doubles down. And what does he do in light of her little parable? Well, he says, I see your parable and I'll raise you another parable, right? So in the moment, he says this. Jesus replied with this parable, which by the way, she said, someday God will have a kingdom feast and how happy and privileged will be the ones who get to share in that joy. It's a beautiful picture, but of only the ones that get to share in that joy, right? That's who it's beautiful for. And this is where Jesus says, oh, this is another teaching moment. Jesus replied with this parable, a man invited many to join him in a great feast. When they, the day for the feast arrived, the host instructed his servant to notify all the invited guests and tell them, come on, everything is ready for you now, right? Anyone on Thanksgiving have this giant exhale when all of the food was finally ready and we could sit down, right? And you know that like for some of us too, uh, when we say we're gonna eat at three, it needs to be like three-ish, right? Because it all takes different amounts of time and we only have so much oven space. So in this story, right, the feast is finally done and we can go let people know. But it says this, but one by one, they all made excuses. And one said, I can't come. I just bought some property and I have to go look it over. And another said, please accept my regrets for I just purchased five teams of oxen and I need to make sure they can pull the plow. And another one said, I can't come because I just got married, which is pretty good excuse by the way, right? It says the servant reported back to the host and told him of all their excuses. And the master became angry and said to the servant, go at once throughout the city and invite anyone that you find. The poor, the blind, the disabled, the hurting, and the lonely. And you tell me if every person on creation doesn't fit into that, those categories. 
the poor, the blind, the disabled, the hurting, and the lonely. And he says, invite them to my banquet. When the servant returned to his master, he said, sir, I have done what you have asked, but there's still room for more. This is Jesus telling the story. This picture is created by Jesus to give you a picture of how things should be. And what does he say, right? The servant goes out, I invite, okay, this was not the plan. Right? We invited uh, this person and this person and this person and this person and they couldn't come. We prepared for them. And, and the servant sent out to invite more and there's still room and he says this. When the servant returned, sir, I have done what you have asked but there's still room for more. So the master told him, all right, go out again and this time bring, back, bring them all back with you. Persuade the beggars on the streets, the outcasts, even the homeless. Insist that they come in and enjoy the feast and hear these last few words. So that my house will be full. Do you see the kingdom shift perspective? It is not about who's at the feast, right? right? We can spend all our time thinking about the who. Now we are to love everyone. That's a good thing, right? But the goal in the kingdom is that the house is full. That's the goal in the kingdom. The goal in the kingdom is that everyone is at the banquet. The goal in the kingdom is that we've prepared the food, there's enough for, for people, and now our job is to feed them. And if some people say no to that feeding, we don't say it's all lost. We say, who else is hungry? Who else is in need? Who else is lonely? Who else is hurting? And we go out, and I love that word. <laughs> we invite and we insist. You ever been like loved into a meal before, but like a mom or a grandma, like, right? They lovingly insist and we're like, that's what we do. We say, we have enough here. We have more than enough. Come, come join with me. How does this shift how we organize and how we gather? Well, did you notice that in the story where the guests came with humility and without expectation, without ego and pride, there is no talk or drama concerning where they sit? The goal isn't the seat of honor. The goal is that the house would be full. See, this is the Jesus way. And the Jesus way defines the world in which we live. We live in a world where, as Christ followers, Christ is king. And if Christ is king, then everything, quite literally, everything and everyone has to be reimagined, reconfigured, reoriented to a way of life that consists in an obedient following of Jesus. A total renovation of our imagination, our way of looking at things, what Jesus commanded us in his no-nonsense imperative of repent is required. See, this is the life of a Christ follower. We go on our way and we are confronted with the way of Jesus and our job is to, in that moment, do everything we can to set down our way to repent, which literally means to change our mind, to turn from the way that's not leading us to Jesus and, and looking like Jesus and to adopt his. One of my favorite authors talking about parables, Richard Foster, he says this, and I want you to feel this with me for a second, okay? He says this, our problem is that the modern religious imagination 
is so stunted that we have effectively locked Jesus into first century Palestine with its robes and sandals and overall agrarian culture. It's saying we come together and we look at this story, but it's a story from 2,000 years ago, so it's really for them. This story is really for them. And he said, we can hardly imagine what it would look like for Jesus to function as a computer programmer or lab technician or construction worker or graduate student, not to mention a mother or a father or a husband or a wife. Can you, for example, picture Jesus attending an NBA basketball game or playing softball with the local team or sitting in the break room with other Walmart employees? Yet these are precisely the kinds of things that we need to imagine if we expect to live as disciples in the modern world. See, this is, this is what I'm really hoping that you leave with here today is that if Jesus were to be alongside you, he were to sit at your meal, that he would have something to notice. And the question would be, what would your response be to his noticing, right? Would it be avoidance? What would he, what would he notice about your marriage, maybe how you speak to one another, how you move through conflict or parenting, the example that you're setting or how you navigate pain and suffering, how you talk about people to their face. This is for someone, how you talk about people when they're not in the room. So he would notice. And for each one of us, this isn't just a story about then. For each one of us, we are to do the work, the creative work of trusting that Jesus would be alongside us and he would have a story to tell. And a lot of times that would bring a level of tension to us. And the question is, do you avoid the tension or do you press into it? Because that's what we do on the way of Jesus. Because the goal isn't just that I feel comfortable or that everyone else thinks I'm a perfect Christ follower. The goal is that I actually look like Christ. And that's hard work. Quite literally. Not in a physical sense, but in every other sense, it will kill you. And it should. The sin nature in us, the, the old way of living in us should and needs to die so that the way of Jesus can come and live. And friends, when you look out at our world and our culture, can we all agree that a new way of forming power structures, loving everyone needs to be adopted? Are we really saying yes to the way that we're organizing things right now? Are we really okay with the status quo? Or could it be that oftentimes the challenges of Jesus are going to feel radical and those are the exact ones that we have to surrender to? It's not just the easy ones, but the hard ones. The ones that say, how are you gathering? I want to be clear about this. Gathering with our friends and family is a beautiful, amazing, I think God is honored and loved and absolutely smiles and loves it, right? But if all we ever do is gather with the people that make us feel the best, we really need to relook at how we're doing things. Because that creates a world in which we are the center of the universe and everything else orbits around us. And this is one of the examples that we Set. Often in a discipleship setting, I'm asked the question about 
um, when someone's seeking after God, they're asking who God is. And a lot of times what I like to do and say, that's a really great question. And we can open the scriptures and look at the truth of who God is. And we can come up with a lot of answers for that. But if you really want to know who God is, then we should start with the question, where is God? If you want to know who God is, you look at the kid table. You look at where the person with the most power sat and how he gathered and the example that he wants to set. He, he, he went towards the, the suffering and the lonely and the hurting. and That is what we are to embody also. As we come to a close in just a minute, I'm going to invite you guys forward to receive communion as we worship together. What's become a little tradition for me is around Thanksgiving to share this quote from Mother Teresa. The problem with the world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. All right? In one way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote Mother Teresa, and then because I feel led right now, I'm going to a little bit... Um, I'm a little bit critique from an experience that I've had. See, I remember when I was uh, a few years ago when my grandmother passed away, we traveled to Nebraska to um, honor her, to bury her, right? And we cleaned up her house and we held a memorial service. And I'll never forget, as a, I was a pretty new believer, but I was all in for Jesus. And I remember at that gathering that he, she was Catholic, at that gathering, they, it was a beautiful um, sharing of her story, but then this moment happened where they invited people forward to receive communion. All right, and it was clear, it became clear at that moment along this faith system, uh, myself and my family weren't to go partake in that. Right? That was for people that had said yes to that. And that, again, we can get in a whole Catholic discussion on a different level. I can just tell you this, all right? As much as I was able to be, I was sold out for Jesus at that moment. And it meant a lot. It would have meant a lot to be able to tell the story of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, the overcoming of death and new life happening in that moment for me. And that's why for us as Christ followers, this is so important. I'm going to invite you forward in just a moment. And these, these tables with communion are, are meant to look like a banquet, right? The early church, when they gathered and they were learning what it meant to follow the way of Jesus... Right? They would actually get together regularly and have a meal together as they're in their normal lives and coming back together and say, how, how do we do this? How do we do this way of Jesus? And you know what? All were welcome. And so as you come forward here today, I want to ask a couple things. One, you start with just a deep sense of gratitude. That as you come forward to the banquet table, you're reminded that it's not just a given that you're invited, but you are invited that the Father, the creator of all the universe says, come, there's plenty of room. Come gather at my table. You are welcome and you are wanted. And then two, I pray this, as you come forward and as I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna invite you and then you'll be invited forward. What I would ask is that in this moment, in, in whatever it looks like, you kind of listening to the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna ask for you to, in your own way, say yes to the Jesus way again today. You may have said yes a long time ago, but I think this yes needs to happen each and every day in each and every circumstance. And so whatever that means, I'm gonna allow the Holy Spirit to speak directly to your heart and your life. But I pray that you would say yes to that beautiful, difficult, God-honoring way again today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you in the name of your Son, 
Jesus, Lord. We come forward today, we receive communion, we tell the story, Jesus, of your body broken, the, the one of power left his seat of power because you know what love does? Love shows up and it comes and it enters the story of those with less power and less authority and it stays and it loves. So we eat of the bread, we tell the story of your body broken and we drink of the cup that symbolizes the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, for the restoration of relationship, for, so that the house would be full. And so I pray, Lord, that there is a deep, deep gratitude for all of us that we are welcome at the table and that there is a giant collective and individual yes to say, Jesus, I choose your way of organizing, of gathering. You have access to every aspect of my heart. Change it as you need to, Lord. So Lord, we receive communion in the name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. You guys come up when you're ready. If you curse me, then I will bless you. And if you hurt me, I will forgive. And if you
There's just no other way. There's no other way, God, to choose but yours, the perfect way. God, I pray that through trials, God, that we have, that we would would think about that and think about how you would handle it, what you would do. When someone hurts us, God, we would forgive them. someone does something to us, God, that we would respond the way you do. And truthfully, God, without drawing near to you and without drawing close to you, God, there's just no other way that we could probably respond like that. So we draw near to you. We draw close to you, God. And I exalt thee, I exalt thee, I exalt thee,
to you are all things. Tell him you deserve the glory. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.